Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to the 1st of January, 2021, Hong Kong Stories Podcast. I'm Rachel Smith. Welcome to 2021. Year dates are a way of keeping track of passing time, agreeing on future events, or recording what has already happened. Even though the calendar year is just part of our timekeeping system, and each day is as important as the next, it does feel good to kick off the dust of an old year and recalibrate for a new one. Welcome to this year of 2021. We at Hong Kong Stories hope that it is a good one for you. Today, as we polish the shine on this new year, we'll be listening to a story from Sheridan about an event well-remembered in her life. We'll also re-listen to a story from Pamela about some choices she made. But before we get to today's stories, a happy New Year hello goes out to our loyal Hong Kong listeners. We made it through the last 24 months. We can make it through more. Hang in there, Hong Kongers. We are listening. Happy New Year goes out to our worldwide listeners as well, this week especially to listeners in Honolulu in Hawaii in the USA, Bear River in Canada, and Helsinki in Finland. Thanks for letting our stories into your ears. We are poised and ready to put on our postponed December live show with the theme of For You, just as soon as we're allowed to gather again. Hold your hats, and in the meantime, if you have a story you cannot wait to share, head on over to hongkongstories.com and contact us through the links there. We're happy to hear story snippets, documents, and even short recordings. Hong Kong Stories. It's better than drama. It's better than comedy. It's real life. And now with the story that was told at the 20th Hong Kong International Literary Festival in November 2020, here is Sheridan. When I was living in Cambodia back in the 1990s, I was doing what I always wanted to do with my life. I was a foreign correspondent. And... I had seen these movies like The Year of Living Dangerously and The Killing Fields, and so I knew how dangerous it could be. Except in the hubris of youth, I, I didn't really. I lived in a villa, a big house with a high wall and a big gate, and the news office was on the ground floor, and I lived up above it, up a staircase uh, behind a door that didn't lock. And as it turns out, having an unlockable door saved my life. It starts out with me in the back of a Toyota Land Cruiser, and we are driving wicked fast from Phnom Penh down Highway 4 to Sihanoukville, which is a city on the southern coast of Cambodia on the beach. And we are trying to get there before nightfall because in those days, the Khmer Rouge still lived in the hills on either side of the highway. And during the day, government soldiers would guard the road. And the soldiers didn't make very much money. So uh, when a car would come along, they would stop the car and point their AK-47s and ask for some money. So 
We carried small bills and cartons of cigarettes to hand out on the way. And later in the day, it got, the drunker they would get. And sometimes they would shoot at your car. Anyway, just for fun. And in the evening, they would go somewhere else to sleep, and the Khmer Rouge would come down and capture the road. And if you were still on the road, they could capture you too. And I knew some people who were killed that way, a British-Australian couple and their friend who was visiting from Australia. They were caught about 5.30 in the afternoon, marched out of their taxi by the Khmer Rouge, held overnight, and executed in the morning. So you can understand why we were driving so fast. Race down the road, come to a screeching halt, pay money, keep going. And when we reached the coast, we were so elated that we hadn't been killed on the way that we raced to the tables on the beach and ordered beers to watch the sunset. And as the sun was lowering over the Gulf of Thailand, I started feeling a few bites on my ankles, and I must have gotten about 10 or so mosquito bites before I said, hey, guys, I'm going back to the car to get the bug spray. Didn't think anything of it. We got bit by mosquitoes all the time in Cambodia. About 10 days later, I was in Bangkok on one of my regular shopping runs because in those days, if you needed shoes or pasta or olive oil or any luxuries like that, you had to fly to Bangkok to get them. So it was a Sunday evening. My shopping bags were full. It was back in the hotel, and I started to feel hot and then cold and then freezing and then sweating. I have malaria. I was on the 6 a.m. flight back to Phnom Penh the next morning, and so on the way back from the airport, I stopped at the UN uh, Medical Clinic, and there was a UN peacekeeping operation in Cambodia at that time, and I walked in and said, uh, hi, I think I have malaria. Can I have some drugs, please? And the Australian doctor there said, uh, well, let's do a blood test uh, first, and while we're waiting for the results, you can have this um, packet of quinine to take home with you and try to take that. Now, if you, you know, drink vodka tonics as I do, you'll know that quinine's not very effective for treating malaria anymore. And uh, it made me really sick. I was dizzy and nauseated. And the next day, I had another fever. So I went back to the clinic and said to the doctor, I, I have another fever. Could I have uh, some stronger medicine, please? And he said, oh, no. Uh, if you have another fever in 24 hours. You don't have malaria. You must have something else. We can do another blood test and see while we're still waiting for the first one. And he sent me home. Because he said, malaria fevers come in 48-hour intervals, and if you're getting them every 24 hours, must be something else. So the next day, I was even sicker. I had another fever. And as I found out later from those two tests, as the fever from the Vivax falciparum strain of malaria that I had was abating, the second strain of malaria that I had, cerebral malaria, was just starting. So I was getting fevers in 24-hour intervals from both strains. 
of malaria. Now, Vivax falciparum is the kind of malaria that recurs. You can keep getting it for the rest of your life. And cerebral malaria never recurs because it kills you. When I was about to die, I knew it. It's like that feeling when you're nauseated and you're about to throw up and you think, I'm about to throw up, except it's death. And so I set in motion a series of small miracles. In those days, most people didn't have cell phones, and not everybody had a landline either. And if they did have a landline, it didn't always work. So I called up a friend of mine who was working for an NGO in Phnom Penh, and Miracle One, she had a landline, and Miracle Two, it was working. And Miracle Three, even though it was the middle of the afternoon on a Wednesday, she was home. I said, Mila, there's something really wrong with me. I'm going to die. So what I knew was that Mila's boyfriend at the time was a German medic in the UN peacekeeping operation. And those German medics had been given an emergency stash of a Chinese herbal drug called Ching Haosu which is called artemisinin in English. And at the time, it hadn't yet been approved by the WHO as a treatment for malaria, even though it had been used in China for 3,000 years. So Milo's boyfriend didn't have a phone either, so she went to the base to find him, and they came to my house up the big staircase and through my unlockable door. When they found me, I had taken off all of my clothes and crawled onto the bathroom floor tiles to put my face on the floor because it was the only place that felt cool. And as I was lying there, I just wanted to escape from this horrible, sweaty, miserable body that I was stuck in. What I remember from that time is I was in a tunnel, and at the end of the tunnel was a bright light. And I was just trying to get there, just to really get to that place where it felt cool and I could finally rest and stop shivering and sweating as I had been doing for days. And that's the last thing that I remember. When they found me, I, uh, they, they managed to get some of this uh, pill down my throat and put me into bed. When I woke up 27 hours later, alive. It's hard to explain the feeling of waking up in that situation, of, of realizing that for a few seconds or a few moments or maybe even longer, you were dead. And, but you're not dead. You're very much alive. You have a raging headache from the dehydration, and you would kill for a cup of coffee. But it's the happiest feeling in the world. You try to get up and stand, but you can't, and you can only stagger. But you are alive. And you start to wonder in that moment, what, what, was, what was there at the end of the tunnel, at that light? And how far did I get before I came back? So 
the reason I woke up at that moment was that a line of ants had come through the door frame and down the wall and across the floor and up the bedpost and onto my bed. And they were kind of poking me to see if I was still alive. And if I wasn't, I think they were going to dismember me and take me away in small pieces. <laughs> so I brushed off the ants and rose up from what was nearly and possibly for a few moments even was my deathbed. You might want to leave your door unlocked after hearing Sheridan's story, or maybe not. Not every story of an unlocked door is likely to end in the same way. Just to be clear, you do not need to have a near-death experience to have a great story. Although, if you do, there's definitely a story for you to tell. Have a look on our website for how you can get in touch and learn how to tell your best story. Now with a story about changing her life through choice. From June 2019, here is Pamela. When you really want something, all the universe conspires to help you achieve it. That's from the novel The Alchemist, and I really believe it's true. One day many years ago, I felt the urge to delete all the numbers in my head coming from my day job as an accountant. So I decided to study a new language to replace the numbers with, in my head with something more meaningful. But which language? As I was working at a European bank in Hong Kong, I told myself, definitely no European language. Then out of nowhere, Japanese came to my mind. Since my life had nothing to do with anything Japanese, I thought that was the perfect choice. So I enrolled in the level one elementary course. But given my past experience of quitting after a few lessons of studying Mandarin, French, and German because I studied those languages for work reason, and that reason alone could not sustain my motivation, I expected the same fate for Japanese. But to my surprise, I became so drawn to the language and to everything Japanese. Besides the language, the teacher also introduced to us the Japanese culture and its people. And what fascinated me most was their stories, the stories of living and studying in Japan. One teacher even shared her ex unusual experience of marrying a Japanese man and becoming part of his Japanese family. The teachers brought the language alive, and I found myself spending Sundays studying the language and watching Japanese television drama at home to learn more about the language and the Japanese culture. During this time, I fell in love with this Japanese television drama called Majo no Jokan, or The Meaning of Being a Witch. The drama was about this 26-year-old teacher falling in love with one of her 17-year-old students. It was a relationship that is unthinkable even in Japan today. But the teacher was unhappy and confused about her life defined by norms and expectation. She wanted a life of her choice. She wanted change. So she, changed, so she freed herself by following her heart and not her head. I only realized much later that my life actually mirrored her life and her courage had inspired me to follow the same. One day, out of curiosity, I asked my teacher, how much it will cost to study in Japan for one year? She said, 200,000 Hong Kong dollars at least. <laughs> no way, I was only making 22,000 Hong Kong dollars a month. 
Then one night, weeks later, I woke up at about 2 a.m. and could not get back to sleep. After much tossing and turning, I got up and switched on the computer. Just as I was wondering what to read, I started typing intensive Japanese language course in Japan. Wow, I discovered a long list of Japanese universities that offer one-year courses to foreign students. I signed up for the free info packs. Within one week, I received 10 info packs from 10 Japanese universities by post. Going through the info packs, I discovered some bargains. The application cost only 100 Hong Kong dollars each, so I sent it to five universities. Although I kept telling myself, there was no way that I could ever afford to study in Japan for one year. I was acting the opposite direction without realizing it. When Lantaku University accepted me to their course and to their student dormitories and gave me a long list of deadlines, including medical checkout, visa application, and tuition fee payments, I diligently followed. I even changed my lifestyle to become a minimalist so I could save more money. I ate only at McDonald's or at local cha chan tang. If I had to eat out, I brought only the necessities. I socialized through emails, and I entertained myself with books and TV at home. I became very motivated in meeting the $200,000 target. Out of nowhere came the idea of emptying my MPF account. To do this, I had to declare at the government home affairs center that I was to leave Hong Kong with no plan of return although I only planned to study and live in Japan for one year. I defended my action by telling myself, who knows, I might end up living in Japan forever. Throughout this time, I told absolutely no one about my moving to Japan plan, and I only told my parents after I paid the tuition fees. The beauty of walking along this journey alone was that there was no outside noise. I trustingly followed my inner voice. One year later, I arrived in Kashiwashi, which is a small town one hour away from central Tokyo by train. That first night when I arrived at the student dormitory, my 18-year-old Korean neighbor who spoke fluent Japanese invited me to have dinner together in our shared kitchen. Sitting around the Japanese-style low dining tables in a kitchen that looked like the 1980s, we had a very quiet dinner. Although I had my English-Japanese dictionary with me, I responded mostly with nods and the word oyishi, meaning delicious because my neighbor generously cooked the dinner. I also felt homesick that night because everything just so, seemed so foreign to me. During the first few months in Japan, I felt awkward trying to express myself to other people in Japanese with my limited vocabulary and incorrect grammar especially when they had to listen to me repeatedly in order to decipher my meanings. What I said must have felt like riddles to them at times, but as I gradually overcame the feeling of embarrassment in making mistakes, I discovered I could connect with people with my facial expression, hand gestures, and smiles. They were receptive in speaking with me in basic Japanese. I continued my minimalist lifestyle so I could afford to experience more of Japan. I remember standing alone and naked on the rooftop hot spring of a three-story hotel overlooking frozen Lake Akan in eastern Hokkaido at minus 23 degrees Celsius. 
I remember the bus driver in Kyoto who warmly reminded me as I exited the bus to take care of my personal safety while traveling alone in Kyoto. I remember the excitement of the 80-year-old grandmother of my summer homestay family in Hagodate when she eagerly showed me her photos and jewelry as she reminisces her good old days. One year went by quickly, the night before I was to leave Japan, my Korean neighbor and I had a farewell t- dinner together at a restaurant. She said, Pamela-san, do you remember? When we had dinner this first night, you kept looking at the dictionary without saying much. But for the past one hour, you and I have been chatting away without any dictionary. Her remark beautifully validated my whole experience of following my heart and believing when I really want something. All the universe conspires to help me achieve it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's stories brought to you by Hong Kong Stories. The music for this podcast was written and performed by Andrew Robert Smith. Everyone has a story to tell.